Exorcism of Emily Rose. This uh, film hit the screen in 2005 and was uh, quite freaky in many ways. It's, it's loosely based on the true story of Annalise Michel, who in 1976 in a small town in Germany had 67 exorcisms performed on her in less than a year. At the time of her death, at age 23, she weighed some 68 pounds. Eric Hansen, in writing in the Washington Post, the release of this film, interviewed people um, who had experience with this case, and one person said, the surprising thing was that the people connected to Michelle were all completely convinced that she had really been possessed, says Franz Barthel, amazement still in his voice three decades after he covered the story for the regional daily paper. Eric Hansen himself got his hands, or probably more accurately, his ears on the recordings of these exorcisms, and he said, Michelle's recorded voice can still send shivers up your spine. It's the voice of a demon, growling, barking, inhuman. I wonder what you think when you hear about this account. Not just simply the film that this story was based upon, but the actual account of this young woman who people could only describe as being possessed. It probably depends on who is being asked that question. Uh, two years ago, in a YouGov survey, Americans believed, 22% of, uh, 22% of them, I should say, definitely believe that demons exist. Another 24 said they probably exist. And so when you hear accounts like this, many, many people are skeptical. What's interesting is, as I was doing research for this, I came across a Barna survey, which was released last year, with this title. More Americans believe in Satan than in God. I had to read that twice and look a little bit more deeply in it. And sure enough, according to this survey, 56% of Americans say they believe in an entity called Satan. But only 51% believe in the traditional biblical view of God as the all-powerful, all-knowing creator. Isn't that interesting? When people come to the gospel accounts and they hear what is said about Jesus and particularly his encounter with supernatural evil, many people are skeptical about what they read. They, they might search for other explanations or say that this was simply made up. But you cannot read the Gospels of Jesus without hearing Jesus challenge us about all kinds of things. Not only our notion about God and our notions about ourselves, but also our notions or our beliefs about the spiritual realm, whether it exists or not, whether it influences or not. And Jesus would say to us, we would be a fool not to take into account the spiritual realm. Not only does God exist and he created all things, but there are angelic beings, he tells us, that have betrayed God, who have rebelled against him, and seek to sow seeds of discord and influence for evil in this world. In other words, the sum total of evil that we see going on in this world, Jesus would say, cannot be reduced simply to the actions of human agents. And so we're going to look at a section of scripture today, recorded for us, in the Gospel of Luke, in which we see this clash that Jesus has with supernatural evil. And it's, it's short in its brevity in terms of the account that Luke gives us because he wants us to see really what sparked the controversy that followed about who Jesus is and 
whose side he's on and what he's about. And so we're going to call our study today The Clash of Kingdoms. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 14 through 16. And as we get ready to look at this, I want you to be on the lookout for four different things. I want you to be on the lookout for the specific miracle that Jesus performs. I want you to see the reaction that different people had to this miracle of Jesus. I want you to see what the scriptures are trying to get us to see about the identity of Jesus. And then lastly, how that helps us understand his mission, not only in his day, but in ours as well. So let's pause for just a moment and ask the Lord to to help us, to be with us as we open these ancient documents that tell us about the life of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, already as we get ready to open this text, we, we do so with lots of questions about what might be described as supernatural evil. We live in a culture that is highly skeptical about the existence of it, and yet Jesus pushes us to not only believe it, but to understand that there are forces at work that clash with what he is all about. And so help us to bring uh, whatever filters we have, whatever skepticisms we have uh, to this text, but also to be able to hear what Luke, the gospel writer, wants us to see and to understand about who Jesus is and what he claims. And so we pray that you would help us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump in at Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Now he, that is Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. Now, this is a really condensed account of what just happened. I, I, I want to say, well, wait just a minute. What, what happened? What's going on here? There was a man who was possessed, we're told by Luke, and as we're going to see from Jesus, uh, he was possessed by a demon. Supernatural entity had taken possession of him and prohibited him from speaking. The gospel writer Matthew tells us this man also had trouble seeing as well. He was blind. And so Luke's account of being mute is probably a shorthand for both of those effects. But Jesus simply cast out this demon, and all of a sudden this man is freed and liberated. Just think about the horror that this man must have experienced. Think about his family wanting help for their loved one and no one being able to help. Not the religious leaders not any other person around who might say they have a a clue about this. No one could help this family and the horror they're experiencing. And yet Jesus shows up and casts a demon out, and it is gone. And we're told by Luke, the people marveled. I mean, they just saw this with their own eyes. And some of the people responded with a sense of marvel. The Gospel writer Matthew also recounts this story, and this is how he introduces it. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? That's really a good question. They're asking about who this person is. And to understand that question, we have to put ourselves back in the mindset of first century Jewish people living at the time of Jesus. They knew that King David had been promised by God that an heir would come and sit upon his throne and he would rule this world in truth and justice and righteousness. Luke has already told us about the mysterious events surrounding the birth of Jesus. He's told us about this angel who came to the Virgin Mary and said to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great 
and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The people of Jesus' day were primed, looking for this figure who would come, who would reign in the way of David, and of his kingdom there would be no end. And so when people are asking the question, can this be the son of David? We're being clued into this person is very significant. And if he is the son of David, that means he's not only the king of the Jews, but he's the world's true king. And he's meant to be the Lord over our lives. And so Luke continues in verse 15 and says, But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now that's an interesting name. I venture to imagine you probably haven't used that name in the last week or maybe even this last month or this last year. This is a strange name, Beelzebul. So some people are saying Jesus is actually casting out demons by this figure named Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, what we need to understand is that there was a figure named Beelzebul who was worshipped in the ancient um, days of Israel, not by the Israelites, although some of them were drawn to him for various reasons, but he was known as Baal, Baal Zebub. Baal was a god worshipped by the people of Ekron or the Philistines, the, the nemesis of Israel. And uh, he, was, he was the prince. He was the deity. He was, he was the god. And so when we see that word Beelzebul in our text of Luke, it's probably a nickname that the Israelites gave to the god of uh, the Philistines, a little play on the words. He's not simply the prince of Baal, but by changing that last part of the word, they name him the prince of, of the flies, the lord of the flies, or the lord of dung, or you can get the idea of what they're trying to say there. And so we're told that some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the lord of the flies, the prince of demons, while others, seeking to test him, kept asking from him a sign from heaven. So some people saw what Jesus did and were amazed. And some people were asking the question, is this the son of David? Some people are saying, no, Jesus is actually in league with the evil one. He himself might even be possessed because he is doing the work of the devil. And other people are like, mm, I don't know, Jesus. Show us more. Show us, show us another sign of heaven. So this, from heaven. This, these are the different reactions that are going on. So what I want us to see, though, in this uh, text, my friends, is, is that no one denied that Jesus performed this exorcism. That's not up for debate. <laughs> there was this demon-possessed man. Jesus spoke, and that demon left him. The only question is, is how did he do it? And really behind that question is, what does this mean? Who is he? Whose side is he on? New Testament scholar N.T. Wright put it like this in his book, Jesus and the Victory of God. This charge against Jesus is not simply a bit of unpleasant religious propaganda. It is the only way that his opponents could avoid the, the clear implication of the ministry they are witnessing. Either the redefinition of the kingdom that Jesus claimed to be affecting was real and God-given, or there was a dark power at work in him stronger yet than the dark powers that had gripped the afflicted individuals. No third option was available. Within the world of first century Judaism, someone who did such things must be either from the true God or from the enemy. 
So this miracle Jesus performed demands a response. Everyone there had to come up with the answer, what does this mean? Who is he? And so some people are said he's actually a pawn of Satan, of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Luke tells us in verse 17, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. So here Jesus, notice, recognizes two things. That there is an entity named Satan. That he, he's in charge of a kingdom. As we've discussed here before at Mercy Hill Church, his kingdom, his modus operandi, is to work by lies and deceit. To enslave people. And so Jesus says, look, if I am working for Satan, casting out the works of Satan, that doesn't make sense. His kingdom would be divided. His house would fall. And then Jesus says this in verse 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now this is interesting, isn't it? Jesus says there are other people who are casting out demons. And that's not to say that what they did was exactly the same as Jesus. But there were people at that time who had roles that were called to, to try to influence demons. And obviously they couldn't do anything with this man. But Jesus says, look, they cast them out, but you're not saying that they are pawns of Satan. So why are you saying that I am? We're told in the Gospel of Mark on another occasion when Jesus cast out a demon that the people were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. See, Jesus didn't have to resort to magical incantations. He didn't have to perform 67 exorcisms on the same person trying to liberate that person from evil. Jesus simply spoke and it happened. What kind of power is this at work in Jesus of Nazareth? Luke is pressing us to ask this kind of question. Once again, N.T. Wright is helpful. It is one thing, he says, to look at Jesus and say, he is mad. But it's another thing to look at the working of the Spirit of Yahweh, that is God's Old Testament name, his covenant name. It's another thing to look at the working of the Spirit of Yahweh and to say, this is the work of the devil. To say such a thing was to paint oneself into a corner from which there was no escape. Once you define the battle for your liberation as the work of the enemy, you will never be free. Jesus then next says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus uses an interesting phrase here, the finger of God. He's making the claim that God is at work in his life in a powerful way. And just like a person might go to battle and overcome their enemies, God is at work through Jesus doing it simply by the power of his little finger. And so Jesus says, if I'm doing this, then this kingdom of God, this rule of God, that I've been telling you about, is coming upon you. It is in your midst. It is at work right now. And so when Jesus uses that phrase, the finger of God, it, it evokes certain imagery in our minds of, of an easiness, 
But let's remember the Old Testament background to this phrase. There was a time in, when Moses had gone to liberate the people of, of Israel, who had not been formed in the nation of Israel, they were people of Abraham, but they were enslaved in Egypt. And God sent Moses to liberate those people. And you remember that Pharaoh refused to let them go. And so God, through Moses, enacted certain devastations upon the land. And the magicians of Israel, I'm sorry, of Egypt, could not reverse it. They could only make it worse. And so when, when Pharaoh called his magicians in to try to undo what God, the creator, was doing, they simply responded to him by saying, this is the finger of God. We're told in the book of Exodus, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. So I want to suggest to you, my friends, that when Jesus uses this phrase, the finger of God, he's evoking this story. And he's saying, just like Pharaoh hardened his heart, when you see me doing the same kind of miracles, and even greater miracles than Moses, by the same power, by the same finger of God, why are your hearts hardened? Why do you refuse to believe me? And then Jesus uses this uh, illustration to help. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. What Jesus is saying is that, look, a person guards their house, and rightfully so. But when one stronger comes and attacks him, takes away his armor in which he trusted, he divides his spoils. And so Jesus is saying, listen, I am the true son of David. I am the one that you are expecting. I come with the power and the announcement of the kingdom of God. And I am doing a full frontal attack on the enemy. I am not working for Satan. I'm not a pawn of the, of the evil one. I'm not possessed myself by the demons. Rather, I am the chosen one of God. Remember how Lucas showed us about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When, when Jesus launched his ministry, he went to the synagogue and they pulled out the scroll of Isaiah and he opened it to this point and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering a sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus said, This is happening right now, through me. And so Jesus, at this point, draws a line in the sand, figuratively. And he says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is using strong language here. Remember, he's been ministering among these people for a long time. And some people are hardening their hearts and they're setting themselves against Jesus and they're willing to write him off as demonically possessed. And so Jesus draws the line in the sand and says, look, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not on my side pronouncing the good news of the kingdom of God, then you're working on the other side. So it's interesting, Jesus, <laughs> he was being accused of being a pawn of the evil one and here he basically turns it around upon them and says, you need to look more closely at who's being used by whom. And then just briefly here, Jesus wraps this part up by saying, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. 
And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. What is Jesus saying here? Uh, Biblical scholars um, are, are in agreement. They're saying Jesus is speaking here of the nation of Israel. What they wanted was war against Rome. They wanted control over their land. They wanted control over their temple. And Jesus is offering a different way of peace than war with Rome. But they don't want anything to do with it. And so if they don't want Jesus' way of peace, he's basically saying, look, what's coming in the wake is far worse than what has been here so far. And of course we saw the outplay of that when Rome sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, which has never been rebuilt to this day. Gospel of Matthew tells us that when Jesus said this, he put, so also it will be with this evil generation. Jesus is not pulling punches here. He's trying to wake people up to understand the gravity of what's going on here. If you reject me, he says, you reject your only hope for salvation in this world and in the next. And if you reject me, Worse comes in its wake. So let's ask this question. Why does Luke include valuable manuscript space to tell us about this episode of Jesus? I think at least in the first place we can say it should be noted that the early disciples of Jesus did not cover up the fact that people called him demon-possessed, or at least the pawn of Satan. They're not hiding the fact that people had all kinds of different views about who Jesus is and by what power and authority he did the things he did. But Luke is also writing to convince us. And he's showing us, just like these people had different responses to Jesus, you and I are called to make a response to Jesus ourselves. And he's writing to convince us that Jesus is the true Savior of the world. He is your only hope of salvation. And if you reject him, there's nothing good in store for you. And so let me put it this way. To understand Jesus correctly is to embrace him as the world's true Lord and the world's only hope. Luke is trying to press this message upon his original audience and also to us as we get to read this writing that he composed about Jesus. To understand Jesus correctly, to answer the question, who is this man, is to embrace him as the world's true Lord and as the world's only hope. So just a couple points of application here, my friends, as we uh, consider what we've looked at so far. First point of application is this. Let's settle the question once and for all, who is this man Jesus? Everyone has an opinion about him. Some people say that he was a great guy. Some people said he did some wonderful things. Some people said his teaching is unparalleled. But who is this man? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? C.S. Lewis, in his classic work called Mere Christianity, took this idea of the necessity of answering this question of who is Jesus, and he put it in a very memorable way. Listen to what he says. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept this claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. Josh McDowell, his classic work, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, put this in a visual form. I wanted to, to show you an adaptation of it. He said, when you look at Jesus, his claims are either true or they're false. They can't be both. Either Jesus is who he said he is and who he claimed to be, or he's not. If his claims are false, we really only have two options. One option is that he knew his claims were false. And if he knew his claims were false, if he knew he wasn't the son of God, if he knew he had no authority to speak for God, then, then he's really a liar. He's a hypocrite because he taught people not to lie. He's also evil because he is drawing people away from the one true God, as some people thought. And he would be a fool because he died for a lie that he knew was not true. So that, that's one option. Another option is that he did not know his claims were false. One option would be that his claims were false, but he didn't know they were false. And if that's the case, he would be a lunatic. He would be deluded, certifiably crazy. That's the option if, if it's false. He either knew it was false or he didn't. But not many people are really willing to write Jesus off as a liar. Not many people, even if they don't follow him, would say that he was a lunatic. Anything is the most sane person among us. So that leaves us with the only really option that is viable, and that is that what Jesus claimed to be is true. And if it's true, then he is the Lord. He's the true Lord of the world, our only hope for this world, our only hope for salvation. And so, my friends, to look at this text is not just to see something interesting that Jesus might have done, it's to have an encounter with Jesus. And for us of necessity to answer the question for ourselves, who is this man? So what do you say? Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? And if he's Lord, then we have really only one option before us, and that is to fall at his feet, to worship him as such. So that's the first point of application. Let's settle once and for all in our own minds this question who is this man, Jesus? Here's the second point of application. Let's remember that the greatest frontal assault on the kingdom of darkness was the cross of Christ. Now, Jesus did some amazing things. We are told that he liberated many people from supernatural, demonic, evil influences. And those were frontal assaults on the kingdom of darkness, or Satan's kingdom as Jesus described it. But his greatest assault, his greatest frontal assault was actually dying on the cross. Not taking up power, but giving it up and allowing evil to do its very worst. And as the religious leaders of Israel conspired with the, religion, or the political authorities of Rome, they nailed him to the cross. And in this event, where humanity did its worst to this most beautiful person who ever lived, God was at work behind the scenes as they orchestrated evil, God took the sins of his people 
and laid them upon the broad shoulders of Jesus. And we're told he condemned in the flesh of Jesus our sins. That is, when Jesus gave up his power, it wasn't just simply an act of giving in to the political and religious power of the day. It was an act of supreme authority. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. And Jesus, in cohorts, cohorts with the, the Father, gave himself up as a sacrifice for sin in the place of people like you and me so that we might receive freedom and forgiveness of sins. This is how Paul, the apostle, who was once an enemy of Jesus and his people, but was converted when he encountered Jesus, this is what he said when he wrote to some followers of Jesus living in the ancient city of Corinth. He talks about how people are, some people embrace the message and some people don't. And he, he talks about people who, who are not embracing it as having a, a veil over their eyes. And this is what he says. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, little g, referring to the evil one, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ. When Jesus was performing this miracle, there was a veil over some people's faces where they couldn't see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus. They couldn't see that God had visited them in the person of Jesus. They had hard hearts and unbelieving minds. And Paul goes on to say, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That is, it's the world's true hope. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What an amazing phrase. The light of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus. And to be able to see that requires a supernatural work of God. Because we're all by nature hardened to that. We're all by nature blind to that. When God works that miracle and opens people's hearts to receive the beauty of the gospel, we're told that we're actually moved out of the kingdom of the evil one and into the kingdom of his son. This is how Paul would put it to the Colossians. He said, he, that is God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, and the forgiveness of sins. My friends, if you've embraced Jesus, God has worked this amazing miracle in your life to remove the veil, to enable you to see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus. And as you embrace Jesus, God works this miracle of liberating you from the slavery to the evil one and placing you within the domain of his son, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That's worth celebrating. So let's settle it in our minds once and for all the question, who is Jesus? Let's remember that Christ's full frontal assault on the kingdom of darkness happened in the crucifixion of Jesus. And the last point of application is this. Let's live out the subversive kingdom. Now, I used a graphic for this message with some hesitancy <laughs> because on this sword is the phrase, in hoc signo vincis, my apologies to those who know how to pronounce Latin perfectly. I do not. But this is a, a Latin phrase that is attributed to Constantine before he was converted to Christianity. He was leading his, 
his Roman army into battle. And as the story goes, he looked up and saw a cross in the sky. And he was convinced that this was a sign of God's blessing. And he saw the words. This one, record, uh, one record of this said he saw this in a dream. But he saw the words, in this sign conquer. And so he believed he had God's blessing to use military violence to, to put down his enemies. And so when I used this, I was a little bit nervous because I was thinking some people could misinterpret that. And we live in a day of religious violence, no doubt. But when we talk about the subversive kingdom of God and in the sign of the cross we conquer, we're not taking up arms. We're not using coercion. We're simply inviting people to hear the message of Jesus. And so we live out a subversive kingdom according to God's law. Here's a, a brief uh, picture of the Roman emperor Constantine seeing that vision in the cross with those words. But let's just remember what Jesus said. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We need to hear what Jesus is saying, and we need to consciously side with Jesus. But we don't use Jesus to achieve our own political and military ends. That's not what he's talking about. Just listen to what happened when the the guards came to arrest Jesus. Judas had betrayed Jesus and had led the guards to where Jesus was, kissed him on the cheek. And we're told that they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, that is Peter, we know from another gospel, Peter stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. In Peter's mind, he's thinking, I'm with Jesus. These people are against him. I'm going to use my might to conquer these people. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. One legion is 12,000. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? You see, Jesus conquers not by taking up the sword and slaughtering his enemies. He conquers by dying for them. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that people like you and me who are natural-born enemies of Jesus, are conquered by the grace of the dying one. Paul would say, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So my friends, as we live out this subversive kingdom that Jesus gives to us, we don't oppress, we don't insult, we don't hate, we don't take up violence to achieve purposes. Rather, we simply preach the folly of the crucified one in the place of rebels like us. Because in that preaching, the power of God, or the way Jesus put it, the finger of God is at work. O holy night that we sung at Christmas has this wonderful line. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. So my friends, as we seek to live out the kingdom ethic that Jesus gives to us in gratitude of the fact that he brought us into his kingdom, we put his law into effect, which is love, and we announce his gospel of peace. 
My friends, there is a clash of kingdoms. But let's go forth proclaiming the gospel of God because of the grace that's been shed abroad in our own hearts.